to be with you guys here today. Uh, many of you who uh, call New City Church home were somewhat familiar with my story. Uh, when I was 19, I lost my dad to a suicide, and it was a very you know, difficult year. Uh, within that same time frame, uh, about six, six months or so, that wasn't the only difficult thing that happened. We had other, three other family members also die uh, that, around that same time. And of course, it, you know, that, that was hard and difficult. Uh, if my dad hadn't died, that none of that would have been nearly as hard as it was. Um, and then I go back to school in the fall, and then one of my other childhood friends that grew up in my neighborhood, uh, he committed suicide. And then I, we had you know, a big group of friends, you know, you're in college, and I found out that two of my friends were involved in some difficult stuff. And I was the only one out of all of our friends group that knew about it, and so I couldn't really talk to anyone about it just because I didn't want to you know, say anything negative about them. And so it was a very difficult time. I uh, dealt with uh, depression. It was really hard. It just this whole like Life was weird. It was not enjoyable. And you kind of wonder, you ever going to feel normal again? And I remember about nine months, you know, after my dad died, it was in the spring. We were playing basketball on campus and we were outside. And I don't know what happened or why it was. Uh, but in, there was this moment where I like went for a rebound because, you know, you're not very good. So you don't get to shoot. And so I uh, <laughs> go for the ball. And I, as, as I'm going for the ball, there was like this, this like second. So I can describe it where I felt normal. And I wasn't thinking about anything, like I wasn't trying to do anything. But for a moment, I, this like cloud of like depression was like, it was gone. And then it came right back. And I remember thinking, That's, that was weird, but I, I felt normal for a second. And then a couple of days later, it happened again. And it was, you know, a little bit longer than a few seconds. And, and in that moment, I realized, well, maybe there is hope. But maybe I won't feel like this forever. Uh, and today we're going to begin the book of Ruth, and we're going to see a very tragic and difficult situation. And at least for today, we're going to end with some hope. And so my hope and prayer this morning, as we begin the book of Ruth, is that if no matter what you might be going through, that there might be hope for you, even in the midst of really difficult times. And so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open to Ruth. Uh, we'll be in Ruth chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one somewhere around you. And you can take one of those home if you do not own a, one, own a Bible. It is our gift to you. Uh, the book of Ruth, some people are really familiar with it. Some of you are somewhat familiar with it. And some of you have no idea what's in the book of Ruth or what happens. Um, if you're in that last category, you're actually in the best spot for this series because there's a lot going on in this book is a way different cultural context and understanding that having no idea what's going to happen will actually help you understand what's going on a little bit better. Before we begin, let me just give you a quick background of Ruth. Uh, Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. Now, the time of the judges is when Israel has moved into the promised land. Uh, God has proven faithful to them time and time and time again. And as long as they are faithful and obedient to them, he will continue to provide. And so they move into the land. Uh, and what does Israel do? Well, they turn against God time and time and time again, and yet God in his grace and his faithfulness and his love towards them continues to redeem and to give them grace. And by the end of the book of Judges, no longer are is Israel just continuing to disobey God, but they're not even repenting. They're not even asking for his grace anymore, and yet even though they're not even repenting, he's giving them grace. And that's going to kind of be a theme of, book, of the book of Ruth as well. So this is happening during a very dark time in Israel's history. Uh, we don't know the final composer of this book. Uh, the, the period of the judges was from about 1150 BC uh, to about 1025 uh, BC. It was composed any time around 1010 or later because this is when King David comes onto the throne. And we'll see why that matters at the end of the book of Ruth. Uh, this story, this, this book of Ruth is a story about an amazing character and integrity and loyalty from a non-Israelite woman who ultimately plays a part in changing the entire 
world. And this is not hyperbole, as we will see. Now, again, the challenge for this book is, number one, it's meant to be read all together. It's a pretty short book. We're obviously going to break it up because there's four chapters. We'll break it up into four weeks. And so it's not always going to be kind of a tidy bow at the end. Uh, the other, ch other challenge is it's, very, it's a cultural context that is very different than ours. And so uh, for this series, at least, it might feel a little bit different what I'm going to do. Uh, what I'm going to mostly do is try to read it, explain what's actually going on, and give us a couple of points along the way. And so all that to say... We'll start in Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and here's what it says. It says, During the time of the judges, as we just talked about, there was a famine in the land. A man in Bethlehem, in Judah, with his wife and two sons, uh, so they left, a man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. In other words, they were Israelites. That's just the tribe that they were part of. They were from Bethlehem, which was in Judah, which was in Israel. And they entered the fields of Moab and settled there. So again, here's what's going on here. During the time of the judges, uh, likely, probably, we don't know exactly for sure, but this, this, my best guess is maybe this takes place around 50-ish years or so before the time of judges ends. So it's definitely in the second half of the book of Judges when things are really bad, when people are not repenting and they are going their own way. So Elimelech takes his family and leaves Bethlehem to go to Moab. Now, Bethlehem for us might sound significant for you. If you're familiar with some other biblical stories, you know it plays a really significant part later on. However, up until this time, it is a kind of a rural, small, insignificant town. Like, you know, I, I grew up in North Carolina, whatever state you grew up in. Sometimes people tell you that they're from certain cities in, in the state. And I'm like, I have no idea where that is. I may never even heard of it. Right? This is what Bethlehem would have been for ancient Israelites. So they're in Israel. The, the Bethlehem literally translated means house of bread. And there's no bread. And there is famine. And so, uh, uh, unsure of what exactly to do, uh, uh, Elimelech takes his family, leaves Israel, and goes to Moab. So instead of repenting, instead of asking God to provide, he tries to figure it out on his own. Now, again, to us, that's interesting. It's like he tried his best to go another land, not working out. For ancient Israel, you would have read this with pause. Uh, Moab was an ancient enemy of Israel. They had fought, or they will continue to fight. Like, this is not like, hey, I'm just going to move to another state. This is like, I'm going to go somewhere terrible. So the best way, my best modern example I can give is like, you know, when I meet people that are moving to Ra the Raleigh area from out of state, and, uh, you know, I'm a big college basketball fan, or I meet people that have been here for a while, and I ask them who's their team, and they say, well, I pull for Duke and, Car and Carolina because they're the home teams. And I said, no, that's, you don't do that. Like, you're clearly not really a fan, right? You can't, you got to choose one. Or maybe put it better, uh, if, a, if a Duke or Carolina player transferred, a basketball player decided to transfer, and they went to the other school, you would be like, you can't do that, right? That's not something that we, we would tolerate. That's not something we would accept. The fan bases would rightly boo you, both fan bases, because that's just not something you do, right? And so not only are they leaving, but they're going to a place that they should not go to. So these, this is not good. Then verse 3, it says this. And then after they get to Moab, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left there with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. And they lived in Moab about 10 years. Both Mo, uh, Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. So Naomi was left without her sons, 
and her husband. So as you're reading this, uh, this is tragic, right? Things are not going well at all. Not only does the, her husband Elimelech die, but he's likely, because they lived in Moab, buried in Moab, which to a, an Israelite would have been viewed as a curse, so that happens. He was buried in a foreign land. Uh, Ruth and Oprah, I knew I was going to say that at some point because there's only one word, one letter difference. So it's or- Orpah, but it could be Oprah. Who knows? Ruth and Orpah uh, never have kids and their husbands also die. So, so her sons get married. They marry two Moabite women, which was also not something you were supposed to do, not because of a racial or ethnic problem, but because as the Israelites would marry with people from other tribes, they would begin to eventually worship their gods. And so God has called Israel to be a beacon, to be a light to the world. And so they were supposed to act differently. And so because they live in Moab, uh, her sons marry Moabite women, and then they die. So the, her sons also die and are buried in a foreign land. And not only that... They don't even have kids. So she's a widow. Her daughters-in-law are Moabite women. They are widows, and there are no kids to speak of. So not only is this tragic for us, but even in the original Hebrew language, uh, there was, there's a lot of negative connotation given to these words. And so here's what you see. You see two things going on here. Number one, you can try to imagine the pain and the hopelessness of Naomi, right? Life is hard. Life is difficult. Your, you, you, your, your family is not being provided for. And so you move to a foreign land, which you probably knew you weren't supposed to do, but you're trying to survive, and so you do it anyway. Your husband dies. Your kids die. So not only are you a widow, which we'll talk about how significantly difficult that was, but you're a widow in a foreign land, and you have no children to protect you. You have no inheritance to pass on. You have no one to take care of you in your old age. This is tragic. Now, again, for us as modern readers, this is probably the only thing we really think of, right? This is, man, this has got to be awful for her. As the, the original Israelite readers, they not only would have felt bad for uh, Naomi, but they would have read this uh, with a, with, with, they would have read this with this understanding of that there is judgment going on here. So again, the book of, uh, uh, of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and this is translated, so we kind of miss out on it, but these Hebrew words are, are even describing, like, you, you would read, like, condemnation and judgment in what's going on here. So you have pain and discouragement and suffering on the one hand, and then you have judgment. I mean, you probably, if we were the original readers, we probably would read this and think, man, this is really unfortunate for Naomi, but they shouldn't have made those decisions. That's, the, that's how they would have understood it, that difficult things are happening. And so I just want to stop here and point out something that might be uncomfortable for, for, comfortable for us, but we need to remember, and that is that God's judgment is real. All throughout scripture, we see that God's judgment is real. It is true that God will not be mocked, that he will not be made fun of, and that he will one day when Christ returns, judge every right and every wrong and put evil in its place. Now, again, the challenge for us is that we can't know, nor do I, would I say it's our place to know the difference between when God is judging something or when God is disciplining someone or we're just feeling the effects of a fallen and broken world, right? So, for example, I get pretty uncomfortable when people say, you know, if we do this, God's going to judge this or God's going to judge the nation or God's, because I'm like, I, it's not our place to know these things. And, and I don't have, you know, a direct connection with God where he tells me, if, hey, if you do this, judgment's going to happen. That, that being said, judgment does happen. That God in different ways and different times does bring judgment upon things that dishonor him, that, that hold back his glory and his name. Now, while that might make us uncomfortable, here's the good news. The good news is that while God's judgment is real, that God is not vindictive in his judgment. He is not vindictive in his judgment. Uh, in other words, he is not unreasonable. This is what vindictive can mean, unreasonable or revengeful. 
In other words, he's not up in heaven waiting for you to mess up so that he can get you. It's like, I just can't wait till she says this thing or he does this thing or he acts this way so I can get them. It's vengeful, yes. In other words, he will right every wrong and he will make sure that evil is taken care of, but it is not revengeful. And we know this. How do we know this? Because of the gospel. The gospel that says the reality that you and I are broken, that we are fallen, that we often go our own way. And what does God do like the song that we sang? That he is enough, that he is worthy, that he is gracious, and that he is kind. That in spite of us, not because of us, he sends Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves to rescue us from the judgment we deserve. As a righteous and holy and just God, he has to do something with evil. And so Jesus comes willingly on our behalf so that you and I can experience the grace and mercy of God. In fact, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, that is what we see, and that is what we're going to see in the book of Ruth over these next couple of weeks, that it starts out with judgment and condemnation, that Elimelech and his family have made unwise and unfaithful decisions, but God is going to continue to be faithful. And so let's continue the story. Here's what happens next in verse 6. It says, she and her daughters-in-law, so this is Naomi and her daughters-in-law, set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's needs by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road, leading them back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. Now, again, just worth the point out here. Notice that the, uh, the absence of any sort of uh, repentance or asking for God, right? She just hears that God provides for Israel, which again, what happens throughout the book of Judges, particularly in the second part, that they're not even repenting. And yet God is still providing for them. And so by God's grace, he's providing uh, food in the land. And so she decides to, especially as a widow and a foreigner, to go back to her hometown. So on the way home, she encourages her daughters-in-law that they should also go back to their houses and their households. Because she knows, right, as a widow and as a foreigner herself, that they are not going to be welcomed in Israel. That they are widows, that they have no family, that they have no inheritance, and they are Moabites. They are not welcome there. And so she encourages them to go home so that, that God might be faithful and gracious to them uh, as, she, as these women have been to her and her family. I mean, even after her sons die, they still stick with her. And so she blesses them and hopes that God will deal kindly with them as they have for her. And then it says this in verse 10. And they said to her, so Ruth and Orpah said this, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Now, if you're reading this and you're saying, are they saying what I think that they are saying? <laughs> the answer to that question is yes, but more on that in a second. You're like, what are they saying? Just, I'll get there. <laughs> you have no idea. So here's, here's what's going on here, right? Uh, the the daughters-in-law insist on going with Naomi. They don't want to abandon her. They know life is hard. And so say that, no, we're going to go with you. Now, uh, Naomi rebukes them. 
right? She says that it is foolish for you, essentially, to come with me for a couple of reasons. One, I'm going back to Israel, so you're going to be foreigners. Uh, two, I don't have any other children, any other sons for you to marry. Uh, I'm too old to actually have sons. Even if I were able to have sons, I don't have a husband. And even if I were to have a husband and could have children, uh, by the time that they got old enough for you to marry, you would be a lot older, right? So nothing of this is good for you. Now, again, in our context, and this is where it gets a little difficult, this is weird to us, right? I mean, is this not weird to you? Like, wait, I have to marry my brothers-in-law, and I don't have any more, and so you have to have kids, and i got to wait for them until they get older, and I'm going to be like 20-something years older than them, and like, what, what's going on here, right? Is that weird? Okay, just weird for me? All right. I think that's kind of weird. But here's, again, because our cultural, culture is difficult. Uh, again, it's important for us to remember that a widow in any culture, in any time place, you have struggles and difficulties that are extremely difficult, right? Even more so here, even more so here when you don't have children. Uh, this, for example, meant that, that your land and your inheritance would cease to be yours. Uh, protection in your old age, people to care for you wouldn't happen. In fact, being a widow, particularly without having any kids, meant that there were certain things like in the justice system that you couldn't get justice for because you wouldn't have someone to represent you. It was very difficult and very bad. And so there was an ancient practice in Israel and a lot of the ancient world where oftentimes if a, a woman and, uh, dies, uh, she would marry her brother-in-law. Now you might say, why would that happen? As I said, there's a lot to explain in Ruth, so we're going to talk about that next week. So a little, little nugget for you. you got to come back. We won't have time to talk about it here. But this was the expectation. All that to say, why is that the expectation? We'll talk about it next week. But again, an ancient Israelite reader would, would, would make sense to this, right? My husband is dead. I want to stay within the family, but I have no one else to marry. So who, what am I going to do? This is why Naomi says you should return home because there is no hope for you with me. And there is certainly no hope for you in Israel. Now, not only, uh, so that, that's what's going on there. So let's continue here. Here's what it says next in verse, verse 14. Here's how they respond. The daughters-in-law respond to Naomi. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back, talking about Orpah, to her people and to her gods. And she's saying this to Ruth, follow your sister-in-law. And so Orpah listens to Naomi, and she goes back home. Now, to be fair here, the, narr the narrator does not criticize this. He doesn't, there's no hint in the Hebrew that this is a bad thing, that she should not have done it. Um, but we do know after this point, she leaves the scene, and we do not know what happens to her next. Uh, but, but what we do see happening here is that Ruth says, I'm going to stay. And so what Orpah's decision does is it highlights even more that there's something interesting and courageous and special about Ruth, that she is willing to stay with her mother-in-law, who she has no legal op uh, obligation to do so, to go into a foreign land as a widow, she will not abandon her. In fact, when it says that Ruth clung to her, this is the same wordage if you're familiar in Genesis, when God says that a husband and a wife will leave their father and mother and cling to one another. It's like this, this covenantal commitment. This is what Ruth is doing, saying, I will not abandon you. I will not leave you. That is what she says here. Uh, and so, uh, one of the other things that might be interesting to us is that Naomi responds. Naomi's words to Ruth might be troubling to us. Uh, when she says in verse 15, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. 
But if you're reading this, you're like, why would she say that? Why would she do that? Now, on the one hand, um, there's a couple of ways that you would describe where people, is for, uh, where people are from. So you, you would use their family geography, kingship language, or their gods to describe where they're from. So their, their family, the geography, who's the king there, uh, what, what gods do they worship? And so she could just be saying uh, that this is the, the place that you're from, so return. Uh, she might mean nothing by it, or... Or Naomi could be pointing to her theological understanding that it is just like Israel's at this time, that there is no difference between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and everyone else. So why should you follow him? Right? It can be a little troubling to us. And so verse 16, here's what Ruth says. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. Now, this is a powerful response by Ruth. Absolutely powerful and courageous. What is she doing? She is committing to Naomi, and she is committing to Naomi's God. As we're going to see throughout the book of Ruth, uh, the, Ruth, this Moabitess, acts more like an Israelite than many of the Israelites do. That she said, I'm committed to you and to your God. Now, to be clear and to uh, be fair, at this point of the story, uh, we shouldn't read this as sort of some sort of conversion by Ruth. That she said, I'm going to give my life to Yahweh. Uh, however, uh, she is not turning back, and that is to be commended. Right? She's committing, here, it's important for us to remember, not just to an individual. So she's committing not just to Naomi here, but she's committing to her culture. She's committing to her God, and maybe in ways that Naomi himself, herself is not committed to this God. Uh, she's not going to abandon her. She's going to be willingly live into a, in a foreign land as a bitter enemy of Israel with no husband. And at this point, probably there's not any prospect that she will ever be able to remarry. She's going to give of herself to love and support Naomi, right? This is what she says. And so in response to this powerful statement of Ruth, here's Naomi's response, verse 18. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her, right? I mean, that's, that's awesome, right? Now, it, maybe it's because of what she said, or maybe it was because of the force of how Ruth said it. But Naomi's like, I, there's no arguing. There's probably a part of her that although she ached for what the pain this probably would mean for Ruth, she was deeply appreciative that she was not going to be alone. And so she has no response. Now, as I read this, this brings to mind what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. Now, in Mark chapter 10, what's happening is that Jesus is confronted by a rich young ruler who asks, how, what can he do to inherit or to be welcomed into the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells him that he needs to sell his possessions, give them to the poor, and to follow him. And so this rich, wealthy young man decides that that's too difficult, and he doesn't want to do it. So he leaves, and Jesus then talks to his disciples about what's going on here. They're kind of taken aback. They're kind of shocked. And he tells his disciples that it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle uh, than to get into heaven. And what he is saying there, uh, so he says that, and the disciples are like, well, then how can we be saved? Right? If a rich person cannot be saved, how can 
we be saved? And Jesus responds by saying, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And what's happening there is, even like us, if we're being honest, but particularly in ancient Israelite culture, if you had someone who was wealthy and even somewhat religious, the assumption was, well, clearly God has blessed them and loves them. And so they, if anyone gets to go into heaven, they get to go. And if God tells a rich person who is supposedly blessed and supposedly more highly favored than anyone else that they can't make it possible, how does anyone have a chance? And that's what Jesus has said is, I have come because no one can do it on their own, but only through me. And so it is in that context that Jesus then says this. In Mark chapter 10, it'll be on the screen, verse 29 and 30, it says this. Jesus says to his disciples, truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive hundred times more now at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecution and eternal life in the age to come. What he is saying is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The commitment is to me and what I have done for you. It is through following me that you receive grace and mercy of God, not through your own efforts and your own doing. Now, to be clear here, it's not, again, it's not that Ruth is making this commitment to God at this point. She's making this commitment to Naomi, but she embodies what Jesus is talking about here. That in response to the grace that God is giving us, through the giving of his son, we, we follow him and we give our life to him, not to earn things from him, but that so other people can also experience the grace and mercy of God that we have received. And so just like what Naomi is doing with Ruth, or sorry, what Ruth is doing with Naomi, it's the same thing for us in following Jesus. So we need to remember that following Jesus is not a one-time decision, but a lifelong commitment. Following Jesus is not like, I was six years old, and this sounds really great, uh, and so I'm going to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then I'm good. I can do whatever I want. It's a lifelong commitment that we make in the moments, but then we live out often imperfectly, often falling short, uh, but we repent, and we turn back to God because he loves us, and he accepts us, and he gives us grace. Now, again, Ruth is to be commended because she's making a decision, but she's now going to have to live with this decision. But it is going to affect her. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, not saying Ruth did this, but if ever you've ever been in a situation in your life where in your excitement of the moment, you made a decision, right? I'm going to do this thing. But then you had to follow through with it, right? So I'll give you an example for me. When I was in eighth grade, it was the summer between eighth grade and ninth grade. So I was going into high school and a group of us from my youth group uh, went on a missions trip to Florida. You know what I'm saying? Uh, no, we did good stuff. We helped this, this smaller church and we did all these things. But on the last day, we stopped at Universal, right? And so I'm like, you know, moving into high school. And so I'm like, I'm going to, me and my friend, uh, we were like, we're going to hang out with like the older crowd, like, because we want to be cool, right? Because being cool in youth group is like a thing, I guess. I don't know. Uh, so we like, we got out of the vans and everyone kind of grouped up. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to ride whatever they ride so that I can hang out with them. So we go in. And the first thing that they want to go to is the Hulk. Anyone read the, read the Hulk, the roller coaster? Okay. Oh, come on now. Anyone read the Hulk? Okay, there we go. Some of you. It's awesome. Now, up until this point, I had written like one or two roller coasters. I'm, I'm not an adrenaline person. Like, I'm not. Like, I don't enjoy these sort of things. Uh, I don't really like how my stomach feels on the rides. And so uh, that's the first thing they went to. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I can't not ride it because that would be extremely uncool. And so we get in line. And the whole time I'm like, lightning, just like it's Florida, so just thunder somewhere or make a mechanical malfunction. Please, Lord, stop this ride before we have to get on it, 
right? But I made a decision, and I had to live with it. And so you get on the ride, um, and right as we get on the ride, wouldn't you know it? I'm just kidding. No, I had to ride it. It didn't stop. And the whole thing is like it like shoots you up, and then you go. And it was great. I had to actually really like that I went, so we rode all these other roller coasters. But in the moment, I made a decision that I didn't have to live with. And so while Ruth is to be applauded, remember, this is going to radically impact her life, and she knows this. And she knows this. And so here's what happens next. Uh, the last part that we will read in Ruth this morning, uh, verse 19, says this. So the two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem, Ruth and Naomi. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the, uh, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, though Moabitess. And they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So again, remember, Bethlehem is a small and insignificant town. Now, it becomes important later on, partially because of what's going to happen at this story, which we'll get to. But at this point, it's a, no, a town from nowhere. Nothing exciting ever happens there. And so everyone is surprised to see her. Again, this is, you know, for like most ancient culture, it's not a highly mobile culture. I mean, you live where you grow up, and that's where you die. That's where your land is. And so you stay there. Everybody would have known her. Everybody would have recognized her when she came back. So they're surprised, but they're excited. It's been 10 years, and Ruth or Naomi has returned. However... Naomi is not the woman she was when she left, right? Tragedy, deep tragedy. I mean, can you imagine this? Husband, children, you've got nothing. You're coming back with nothing. It's kind of like, I mean, I know it's different now, especially like for my generation because uh, social media. Uh, I didn't even go to my 10-year high school graduation because I was like, I don't really need to because I see you people and if I don't really like you, why would I go talk to you? I don't know. Um, I love people, but I hate small talk. So I'm like, I'm never going to see you again. Why, why talk to you? I'm, I'm very like Jesus in this way. And so... <laughs> Uh, but, you know, who, who wants to go to their graduation um, and, and, tell, and be like the one whose life is the worst or their, their, uh, their reunion, right? Or a family reunion. Like, who wants to go and say, not only did I get the job, like, I got nothing. I'm poverty. My kids died. My husband died. Everything is terrible for me. I mean, this is, she has to tell them everything, and she's by herself. I mean, the shame and the embarrassment and the regret would be awful. And in fact, that's why she says, so Naomi means pleasant. Uh, and Mara means bitter. And so what she is saying is she has gone from pleasant to bitter. And so she's conflicting in chapter one, right? On the one hand, uh, she's commended for blessing her daughters-in-law and encouraging them to go home, even though it makes it difficult for her. But on the other hand, I mean, she did leave Bethlehem to begin with. Uh, she doesn't seem to understand that Yahweh is different than all the other gods. And so she's a conflicting person and she returns home. And what's, diff what's difficult is not only does she have nothing, but in, in actuality, she has worse than, no worse than nothing. She has a Moabitess with her, right? A widow and a foreigner, right? That is what she has to show for the 10 years that she was away. And so the Ruth chapter one doesn't end with awesome excitement. Um, it doesn't even end like in a tidy little bow. And I think this is good for us to sit in this because sometimes, you know, if you read the Bible on your own, like personal study, uh, not everything ends great. Sometimes we need to read scripture for what we'll learn and what we'll experience later on in life, but it's not always like I'm going to read a chapter and get this amazing truth for me today. 
right? This is where we leave with Ruth. Again, Ruth is meant to be read altogether, but we're going to leave it being a little uncomfortable, that there's tragedy, that there is regret, that there is pain, but there is also hope. There's also hope. Again, verse 22 ends with this. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That there is food. Now, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. But God clearly has not given up on Ruth and Naomi. He has not abandoned Israel because there is hope. And so I, I say this to say, uh, I know the difficulties that some of us carry uh, and, and things that have happened to us or maybe this morning. And one of the things we're going to see throughout the book of Ruth, giving it away a little bit, is this. That God ordains tragedy to set the stage for triumph. What we're going to see here is that although the story ends with hope in verse 22, there at least is food. When Naomi returns to Israel, she looks around, and what does she say? I have nothing. I am bitter. I have no hope. There is nothing left that can happen to me in this life that really makes it worth living. And from the outside, that appears to be true. She has nothing. Her life is awful. It is in shambles. And yet... And yet, that is not the case. And I think for some of us, sometimes we walk through difficulties and painships and hardships in life, and we look around, and we assume we know how this is going to end. But we have no idea what God is actually going to do. You see, when Naomi returns here, she has no idea, no idea that the person next to her, this Moabitess, is going to take part in changing the entire world. She's going to take part in bringing the fullness of God to earth, as we'll see as we continue reading. She has no idea. And I think so often for us, when difficult things happen to us, we begin to assume, well, this is it. Uh, because this happened, here is what this is going to mean for me, and there is nothing that can happen to change that. And we have no idea what God might use, how God might use what we have gone through for his triumph, for his glory, and our good. Now, I want to be clear here. The things that are going to happen to Ruth and Naomi, particularly to Naomi, is not going to take away from the fact that she lost her husband and her kids. Like, there's nothing that's ever, that could ever happen to Naomi to say, you know what, this is great. It's actually worth losing my wife, my husband, and my kids for. I, I mean, me for an ex example. Uh, God has used my story. I've allowed to walk through a, with a lot of people with difficulties and painful situations because of what I have went through. And there is not a day where I would not rather have my dad back than be able to help people when they're going through difficulties. Right? And so this is not like, hey, bad things are going to happen and it's going to be great. In fact, I believe a lot of bad things that happen to us, we have no idea how God uses them until we are into his kingdom. And we get to share the stories of how difficulties and pain and tragedy and suffering and depression that God used to bring other people into his kingdom. And so if you're there this morning where life is hard and you have questions and you do not know, here's what I would encourage you to do. Not to assume you know the end of the story because you don't. I mean, isn't this the gospel? People mocking Jesus, putting a crown of thorn on him, beating him, assuming they knew the end of the story. And what happens? God uses the most incredibly difficult and unjust thing in the world, himself, his perfect son who never sinned, took the place of death, is crucified and died on our behalf so that we might receive the grace and mercy of God, that there might be hope even when we do not see it and even when we do not understand it. And this is where we leave Ruth chapter 1. And so here's what I want to do. Um, I want to invite the orchestra back onto the stage. <laughs> and uh, we are going to go into a time of confession here in a second. And then after that, we are going to sing a song about the goodness of God 
and the hope that God gives, even if you are in the, in the midst of a situation where you do not see how that is possible. And so my encouragement as we close with this song is that some of you can look back at God's grace and goodness in your life and you can sing that he has brought death or he's brought life to death. He's brought hope to the darkness. And some of you are in it right now and you need to sing this with the hope and really as a prayer that you might be found faithful, that you might follow Jesus and that he might reveal himself faithful and good to you even though right now you have no idea how it's gonna end. And so what I would like to do this time of confession, we do this every week at New City. We confess our brokenness to God. Why? Because we are broken. We simply get to be honest. We don't have to pretend here. And why do we confess? Because every time, God always responds to repentance with grace. And so before we sing this last song of hope, I thought it might be good for us to confess the times where we assumed we knew the end of the story. We assume because this happened to me, my life is done. Uh, my life is going to be marked by this. And I am no, of no use to God or to anyone else. I mean, how powerful would it be for us to lay down our burdens, our sufferings, our doubts, and our questions and say, God, I don't know how this is going to end. God, would you forgive me for assuming that I know? And would you give me the courage and grace to follow you? Uh, and, and the ability to do so in the midst of my doubts and my suffering so that I could take part of the story you are writing, which will be much more incredible than I could ever ask or imagine. And so would you go to the Lord privately in prayer and confess the times where you assumed you knew the end of the story. Ask for his grace and his forgiveness. I'll close this in prayer and then we're gonna sing to our God who can, make, who can turn any tragic situation into good for our glory, for his glory and our good. So would you go to the Lord in prayer?